Christ, according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Revelation was not yet preached enough. At least that was one main claim that a former student made in their dissertation. A claim I was convinced by. So, if you want to blame someone for my text choice this evening, I invite you to brush up your research skills and figure out who wrote that dissertation. Revelation doesn't get much of our attention, at least not directly and explicitly. It appears here in the lectionary for all saints, and we tend to notice the New Jerusalem in chapter 21, and occasionally the letters to the seven churches. But by and large, we seem to have accepted the apparent wisdom of people like those who warned my youth group in our teenage years to stick with something a bit more straightforward. However, for this moment, in our time, on this All Saints Day, I believe the Revelation reading speaks loudly and that we are invited to listen. Not just to listen, but to have our allegiances aligned and to be inspired to persevere. We need our vision expanded, our hope given shape. As in the earliest days of the faith, when the empire seemed to overwhelm all that was, so we too 
can begin to feel that the world and its machinery of war and hatred and violence, of greed, corruption, and waste will engulf all that is. We must anchor our hopes in God's good future. The beastliness of what is seen, what is now, what seems to have control is no match for the ultimate power that sits on the throne, the one who vanquishes evil dressed in white. Tonight, when I think we could all do with a bit of reminding of what it is that we hope for, I want to highlight three things. Yes, three things. Sorry, they're not alliterated. Three things from the vision that the Revelation reading offers. I am not treating this passage as a roadmap of the future, but rather as a visionary expression of Christian hope in God's power and goodness. It is apocalypse. For more on that, stay tuned in New Testament studies. And it, and it envisions God's triumph in cosmic terms. So how might its fantastic imagery inspire our hope and give us courage for the facing of our own days? First, this is point one, it points to worship. Even if I wasn't a Methodist, and a personal fan of a good old-fashioned hymn sing and gospel music in general, I suspect I still would have spotted when reading Revelation that there's an awful lot of singing going on. Right in the middle of our short passage, we get the song of angels and elders and the four living creatures. But this is not the first time in the book of Revelation that we encounter explicit reference to singing. As soon as we move from the letters to the seven churches into the vision of God's heavenly throne room, singing begins. The four living creatures sing. The 24 elders sing. The saints sing. The angels sing. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth sing. Worship characterizes the place where God's presence the vision invites us to be awestruck at the presence of God. These cosmic figures fall on their faces and worship. The appropriate response to encounter with the Almighty is adoration. I realize that what I'm saying seems self-evident. Most of us have been raised on things like, to God be the glory, great things he has done, or for the younger ones among us, come, now is the time to worship. We know that we are supposed to give honor to God, and we have come to associate that with gathering in a special place and singing words and tunes that we sing nowhere else. But, I think, this passage invites us to a vision of something that obliterates the ordinary. It imagines a totalizing abandonment to adoration. This is being lost in wonder, love, and praise. And this is an allegiance that claims us over and against and instead of all else. 
For the book of Revelation, worship and allegiance go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other, and Revelation is claiming allegiance away from the kingdom of this world and transforming it into the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. When our sneaking suspicions in the middle of the night tempt us to believe that the world is more, that warfare is accelerating faster than any attempts at conciliation, that the planet is rapidly reaching the boiling point, that those who seek their own power and glory and will do anything to maintain it are gaining the upper hand. Revelation's vision reminds us who ultimately holds the future. We cannot be halfway aligned. What we give our time and our devotion to, that is what we worship. What we believe is good, what we hope for, that is what we will devote our lives to. Our hope, our anticipation must remain grounded in what God wills, what God brings about. All else is illusion. All else is false allegiance. Revelation is concerned about the empire. In its world, Rome's totalizing dominance threatens to control and overwhelm. Persecution is real and is a real threat. And Revelation casts a vision of a future of wholehearted worship as one expression of devoted allegiance. That allegiance is directly urged in the surrounding context. Twice, the vision of coming turmoil pauses for an announcement of sorts. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints in 1310. And here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus, 1412. Hold fast, stay true, keep the faith. This book with its wild visions its creatures with innumerable eyes, its beasts and dragons, urges the audience to stay faithful in the face of a terrifying and apparently out of control world. The hope and the promise are to be found in holding fast and keeping the faith. While chapters 13 and 14 name this explicitly, I suspect it's pictured vividly for us in our passage. The two might just work together, the vision and the exhortation. The vision presents a world that the audience should want to be part of. There are sharply contrasting visions in this book. There is the chaos and terror of the world where a dragon chases a laboring woman where beasts rise out of earth and sea, where plagues rage. Colors are dark and stark. Dragon is red. The woman Babylon wears purple and scarlet and sits on a scarlet beast. And in contrast, there is a world of order, peace, purity, and blessing, where God's throne is like dazzling jewels, 
There's a crystal sea, and seemingly everyone wears white. Did you notice how many times white robes appear in our passage this evening? The great multitude are robed in white, verse 9. The elder asks the visionary, who are these robed in white? Verse 13. And that elder reveals them to be the ones who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14. White robes seem important. In the letters portion of the book, the Laodiceans were urged to buy white robes for themselves. 318. The martyrs who were under the altar were given a white robe. 611. In chapter 19, a rider on a white horse appears and seems designed to be a vision of the conquering Christ. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, chapter 1913. He is accompanied by a heavenly army. You guessed it, they're wearing white. This vision offers a stark contrast between the dark and perhaps the regal and powerful and luxurious, and the bright pure, clean, and committed. It's no accident that tonight the sacristans have dressed the chapel in white for this All Saints Eucharist, nor that so many hymns invite us to picture our clothing cleansed by what one of them calls the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. These symbols, these pictures, depict they make vivid our allegiance and that of the saints, those who are on the side of the Lord. Here in Revelation, allegiance is signaled through outward dress. We can see and emotionally experience the appeal of the heavenly court, and we can see vividly who is committed to what cause. It may not always be quite so obvious in our world and in our time. Probably it wasn't quite so clear and obvious in John's day either. But this text sees from the divine perspective, from the cosmic perspective. God knows our works and our ways. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He knows our true commitments that no amount of outward dressing can disguise. Saints, wear white. The sharp contrast between good and evil invites us to choose a side and to live that commitment wholeheartedly through the great ordeal until the ultimate triumph of the Lamb. So worship, persevering allegiance, and finally, peace. Perhaps I could have fallen for praise perseverance, and peace. Our passage culminates in hope, offering a vision of the world in the presence of God. Like its somewhat more famous counterpart in chapter 21, it places human beings into the presence of God, and the human experience is utterly transformed away from all that we know into all that we might hope. An overturning of the brokenness of the human experience is vividly captured in the image of God wiping every tear from their eye. 
Christ in both 717 and 2104. Human suffering is banished by the very presence of the one seated on the throne who shelters. Hunger and thirst are gone, replaced by the gushing of the springs of the water of life. The elements no more threaten. No burning sun, no scorching heat. These images, as well as the end to darkness and to death in chapter 21, take up the ancient hope of God's good future and recast it again into its audience's future. Isaiah's imagery of the new heavens and the new earth, you know you're not going to get away without this one reference. Isaiah's imagery of the new heavens and the new earth, with the banishment of weeping, hunger, violence, and untimely death, are here renewed and re-envisioned. Again, people are called to remember towards hope, to live in the light of God's good future. Praise perseverance, peace. Each enables the other. Each is our calling today. Like the saints whose example we celebrate today, we must live our faithfulness in our time. We don't do it dismally. We do it in hope. We do it with faithfulness. We do it knowing that our lives are in the hands of the one who sits on the throne, the one to whom salvation belongs, who is God of power and might, and who will wipe away every tear. Amen.